Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-367 of the new summer of the Run Run Live podcast. Here we are in June. Today we are going to chat with Matt. Chat with Matt. I like that. Who qualified for Boston recently. Yeah. Not to be entirely self-promotional, but he used the Marathon BQ plan from my book, Marathon BQ, How to Qualify for Boston in 14 Weeks with a Full-Time Job and a Family. That recounts my own journey to a Boston qualifier many years ago. And it fascinates me to listen to these folks who have run the plan and qualified. It's wonderful to me that it actually works for them. (laughs) When you write something down like that, there's always this worry that it has nothing to do with the content, somehow it's just you and your genetics or your work ethic or pure chance tipping those scales. So congratulations to Matt for putting in the work and reaping the rewards. Welcome to Boston. So this book, though, continues to have legs, especially in April, for obvious reasons, in both the ebook and the audiobook form. And I'm thrilled to help people direct their energy and strength in a way that enables their goals. It's very fulfilling. So I'm going to look into spinning up a webinar course version of it where I would step through the chapters like over 12 or 13 weeks in a live webinar. And if that's something you're interested in, let me know and I'll try to put the registration up probably on my qualifyforboston.com site, which I own. I'll try to do that shortly. Should be fun. I'll learn something, help some folks. I'm I'm not a webinar rookie. I do them for work many times. And if you've listened to this for a while, you might have heard me talking about giving presentations or presentation skills or such. And it's one of the things I've worked on my entire career And I think I'm up to maybe a B or a solid B or a B plus now in terms of presentations. I gave a presentation this week in Boston at a startup conference. And it was a room with maybe, I don't know, 100 souls in it. And it was a blast. I had a five-minute slot to give a pitch and a demo and do Q&A. Supposedly they're going up on YouTube. It used to be that I would be flop sweating and have to stand up in front of the room there with that uh, nerves. But uh, I love it now. If you prepare well and you practice your craft, you can turn that nervous energy into performance energy. And I met a bunch of cool startups too, at least one of which I'm going to get on the podcast. This These guys are making a sensor garment that you wear and it tracks all your vitals and your haptic response for for athletes. And I'm definitely going to wear test that thing. I'm 16 days into my 5 at 5 project, and this is a project where I get up at 5 a.m. and run five miles every day. I write a quick blog post about it every day, too, with a photo. If you want to follow along and see what's rattling around inside my brain, it's over at my Run Run Live website. It's fun. I take Buddy, the old Wonder Dog, with me 
for the first two miles on the trails, and then I go back out for another loop to make up the five, and he seems to be handling it well. On the weekends, I still get out, but I freelance a bit, throwing in some longer runs with Ryan on Sunday or going out later. I'm doing as much on trails as possible. And for section one today, I will give you, actually for sections one and two, I'm going to give you the Kettletown 50K race report. It was, of course, close to 20 minutes long, so I split it into two pieces and bookended the interview with it like like uh, you know, like a serial, right? Build some tension, some anticipation, right? Yeah. So you know, I read too much. <laughs> really, when you read too much, the words start to seep out of your brain, like coffee through the seams of an old cardboard cup. They just find their way out. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The Kettletown 50K. Up, down, and round around. I was struggling to keep moving up a near-vertical slope studded with rocks. My heart hammering, my legs complaining my breath ragged. I'd already fallen down three times, my hokas catching on the rocks. The vertical was way worse than I had expected. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give it an 8 plus, over a thousand feet of gain in every 10k loop, single path through granite rock piles, hand over hand climbs in places. And I thought to myself, I'm not even 20k into this race. There is no way I'll make 50K. And then I made a deal. You know those deals you make. I'd finish 30K. I knew I could tough out another 10K, even if my body failed. If things were awful at 30K, I'd pack up and head home. I hadn't trained for the race. I had no real goal, no dog in the fight, so to speak. The stakes were very low. Except that, are the stakes ever that low in a race? I hadn't trained for a trail race or a 50K. I trained hard and ran Boston in April, and since then I had run the Groton 10K twice in one day and a few longish trail runs. But no specific training for this. And my biggest fear was that my legs would go. I didn't have the requisite volume on my legs, and I figured if something was going to go, it would be the legs. Technical trails use a different set of muscles and fascia than road marathons. I was thinking about how hard I had cramped in the final mile at Wapak last year, and that, while just as technical and vertical as this race, was only 30K. I was bored. That's how I got into this. I had originally planned to climb some of the local mountains as a nice summer cross-training alternative, My training plan was to keep running casually and on the trails the rest of the time. My spring training cycle was outsized on the stress and time requirements, and I was looking for an easy summer to rekindle the romance. I hadn't thought about the fact that the snow doesn't leave the mountains in New England until the end of June. So I started thinking about what I needed to forestall the inevitable pivot into a month of sloth. What was that? A reasonable goal of some sort. And it dawned on me that a nice long trail race would be just the thing. And hey, while we're at it, I've never run a 50K, and I don't have a Connecticut Marathon on my 50 states list. It's this kind of reasoning on my part that leads to adventures both good and bad. My light, pernicious fingers danced across the keyboard, turning whimsy into reality. Lo and behold, here was this Trail 50K, only two-ish hours down the highway from me in a couple weeks. Fate danced its naughty dance, and I was locked in. I did notice that the course profile looked a little dicey, but hey, how hard could it be? My engine was good. I had 18-plus months of solid aerobic base. That wouldn't be a problem. No, if something was going to go wrong, it would be the legs. 
I figured I'd just take it easy and hike enough of it to finish. The course was a convenient 10K loop, actually a 10K two-loop figure eight, with the first side like 4K and the second half like 6K, and this meant that you passed the starting area at least 10 times in the 50K. I wouldn't have to worry about carrying too much stuff, and I could position a drop bag and a cooler, very low risk. And since misery and foolishness love company, I asked Teresa if she wanted to ride along, ride shotgun, and try one of the shorter distances. She readily assented. She's a gamer, that girl. We got up around 5-ish for the drive down. I wore my road hokas, my Brooks baggy shorts with the liner, and a bright orange tech shirt from the Wapak Trail Race to make it easier to find the body. I pre-mixed one bottle of Yukan to preload some nutrition before the race on top of my morning oatmeal and coffee. I wasn't planning to use any Yukan during the race. I had another strategy. I knew I would need fuel of some sort. I also knew I would be going slow enough that I could eat almost anything. And I also knew I didn't want to load up on any industrial sugary nastiness like gels or sports drinks. This might be a challenge in a long race where you have to consider portability into the equation, but here, in this race, with the convenient stopping point only 6k distance at the most, I could set up a barbecue if I wanted to. Now, barbecue is not a good distance fuel, neither is clam chowder, but green smoothies are. My plan was to mix up a few bottles of green smoothie, stick them in a cooler, and that way I could load 12 ounces or so up every 10K. That would be a couple hundred calories of good natural energy, plus it would support my recovery. Get some of that natural goodness in my gullet. I packed a bag with extra hats, shirts, socks, anything else I could think of, made some incredible green smoothies, and put them into 24-ounce water bottles in my cooler. They said... They would have water on the course, so I just brought a single bottle that I could refill. They also said they would have Endurolites on the course, so I didn't need to carry those either. And I told Teresa that the over-under on falling was two. And I was way off. I ended up face-planting five times, once quite badly on my ribcage. So we found our way to the state park in plenty of time. It was right off 84 outside of Hartford. We went and picked up our stuff and chatted up the race director. The weather had called for sunny and 70s, but it was overcast and spitting rain when we got there. Not bad. Great running weather. Nice and cool. I dropped my bag and cooler in the transition area reserved for the ultra runners. Looking at the sign-up sheet, there were less than 20 souls signed up to go the full distance. There were four in my age group high likelihood of finishing in the top three. The start-finish area was on a flat bit of ground in a cleft between the two loops next to a pond. The pond was one of those shallow, dirty things created by damming a brook, typical state park fair. The first loop climbed quickly out of the start and looped around the back of the ridge on old farm roads and single path. By old farm roads, I mean double-path trail in the forest, totally enclosed by the trees. The second loop followed the brook for eh, half a mile or so before heading up and around the back of another ridge, more like a small mountain, and then coming back down to the front, to the brook, and back. The finish was across a nice wooden bridge down a wide crushed rock path, and it was a fantastic way to finish. You could really relax and put some speed on after an hour of rock hopping in the woods. And checking my pace on the Garmin, even in my high mile laps, I was moving right along when I came into that transition area. They started the 50K and the 30K, I believe. They started us first. They gave us a five-minute head start over the rest of the runners. Teresa opted for the 20K. Milling around there at the start, as usual, I was chatting up the quote-unquote crowd, and met one of my old Daily Mile connections, Mike. I did a quick roll call and realized there were very few people going 50K. Probably a full half of the people did not start 
or drop to a shorter distance. And now for today's featured interview. Matt Dunlop, <laughs> how are you doing? I'm doing well, Chris. So give me 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do and, and why we're talking. Okay, well, I'm just a normal guy, husband, father of two kids, 44 years old, work at an airplane factory in, uh, just outside of St. Louis. Yeah, I've been in that factory. That must be the old McDonnell Douglas, right? That's the one. Yeah. I do that, and then uh, I've been running off and on since I was probably in my early 30s, mid-30s, but I never raced at all until 2015. I ran my first 10K, and I loved it. I've been hooked on racing ever since. Cool. And, uh, and my daughter is the one who kind of uh, inspired me to, to run my first marathon. She ran a half marathon in the fall of 2015 with a couple of her friends from college and um seeing them come across that finish line and everything i was just like wow i have to do this so you trained and ran uh, your first marathon right so the next year when that one came around i saw she talked me into signing up for the full yeah so so that's what i did so uh, last fall how did that go well good and bad i used a training plan that was on my uh, run keeper app it was a, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of, uh, there's a guy out there named Jeff Gaudet. Yeah. Um, what's the name of that? Runners Connect. And it was uh, one of his plans on there. It worked pretty good. But see, I didn't know what I was doing. And I went out way too fast. And I got to about mile 18, 19. And I feel like I'm cruising right along. And I, I noticed I'm slowing down, but it doesn't feel like I'm slowing down. I had no idea what was happening. And then I started to just feel like crap. So for the last 10K, I think um, there was a positive split for about, for about, I don't know, 10 or 11 minutes. Yeah, so your classic but, sort of uh, first marathon right, experience. But when I crossed the halfway point, it was like 135-ish. And at my age, 43 at the time, I'm thinking, if I can keep this pace, I can qualify for Boston, you know, and I'm, I'm starting to get pretty excited. I ended up finishing 322.59, and I was very excited that I just run my first marathon, but at the same time, disappointed that I <laughs> those last few miles just yeah. killed me. Yeah, you crashed. But what kind of time did you need to qualify at that point? Well, that's another story in itself. I didn't understand how it worked, and uh, once I got to reading their website, and I realized that the uh, window for qualifying was September to September, so I ran that race back in October, and that's for the 2018 Boston, and I'll be 45 when yeah. that race comes around. So I actually, uh, I'm sitting there looking at the computer, and I think, man, I, I did qualify. Yeah. But then I get to reading some more, and how it is, you got to beat it by so many minutes to make sure you get in. Yeah. So, so, so you- <laughs> that's when I decided, all right, I'm going to make sure that I get in and um gonna qualify for real. Right. And I've been listening to your podcast during that time and I knew about the book and I said I'm gonna get that book and uh see if it can help me out. So that's how that got started. Yeah, so you started training with the the Marathon BQ plan, which is a, a lot of speed work and a lot of volume. And I think I remember talking to you about this when you started it. Walk us through how those first couple of speed sections uh felt. And did you do them on the track? Did you have a track that you were going to? Yeah, I started out at the track and uh, absolutely hated it. <laughs> I, thought, how, <laughs> I thought, how in the world am I going to hit these times? I could pull it off once, almost pull it off twice. For speed, I had to do, uh, you know, I was shooting for 620-ish. I really wanted to get a 315 just to say that I could. Yeah, so for the 1600, you were shooting for a 620. Right. I could just about hit it the first time around, and then the second and third time, I was 10 or 15 seconds slower. So I hated it. But at the same time, as it went along and I started to get to where I could execute it, it's kind of a love-hate thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It feels pretty good when you're done. Did you find that, like, your body figured it out? Well, I did have to... I realized I couldn't start out so hard. I was learning how to, I guess, pace myself... Even at that 
high yeah. of a speed, I would start out too hard and, and crash. Yeah, and what I recommend to people is you actually mark off the corners, right? Mark off the 50s Yeah. and try to hit the 50s in that first lap. Know what your splits are for the 50s and the 100s so that when you keep yourself from, so you spread it out a little bit, right? Right. And, so and it's, and it's always that third lap, which is the killer because you're too oh, yeah. far away to be able to see the finish, but you're just in total oxygen and, <laughs> and muscle debt, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I did use the all the marks on the track for that. But see, when I started my plan in uh, the third week of January, so I guess maybe five or six weeks into it, they started having uh, track practice at the high school. Well, that's the time that I like to get out and run. So what I did was I took it up to the park here by the house. Now, there's a one and one third mile loop there. Oh, that's perfect. Right. So I measured off my mile. And I basically just use that and uh, a stopwatch. Then you use the other third of the mile as your cooldown, right? Exactly. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's what I used to do on a, a gravel loop outside my office when I was doing that plan. I had the same thing. And it was nice because it had some like slight elevation changes in it and some different surface textures, so it sort of broke it up for me. Nice. Yeah, exactly. So when you got towards the end of that plan, the volume's pretty heavy. Right. Um, right. For those things, you're doing like eight sixteen hundreds at tempo and five at speed. Did you get through the entire prescriptive plan? Yeah, I did. I made it through. I missed one workout the whole time. I thought I tweaked something in my ankle about the second week, so I skipped one day just to make sure nothing was terribly wrong there, and went back out and everything was fine. So I made it through all the weeks. Injury free. I did a lot of foam rolling, a lot of stretching. Tried to get the wife to massage my calves for me, but pretty much had to do that myself. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the way it is, you know, married. <laughs> and then at the end, when you're into that last two or three big weeks, did you find that the, the reps were now doable and sustainable? Yeah. Um, I really surprised myself once I got to those big weeks. Two and three reps at the beginning was I thought, how am I ever going to do this? But I was hitting my times uh, pretty well there at the end. On those uh, eight rep days, the tempo runs, I was able to pull it off. It took everything I had on that eighth one, but I was able to do it. Yeah, and the other thing that I found when I was doing this is that if I had the, like, forgot my watch or something like it was too dark to see my watch, I could almost hit those times without looking at it. Right. It sort of like wired those paces into my body at some point. Right. Yeah. I felt the same way. I had to take my workouts to another place, even from the park that I mentioned. They started working on the path there. There's a little bridge. And I thought, oh, great. What am I going to do now? So I programmed the workouts into my phone and there's a rail trail that uh, I could drive to and get out and do my workouts there. So. I had no uh, really way to measure myself. By then, I knew the pace. I knew yeah. what it felt like. Yeah. And I was able to do it. And it just felt great. Yeah, and I found when I did that, I'd always come in like five seconds too fast. Like, I'd be in the ballpark, but I'd actually be too fast just because I'd be worried about it, right? Yeah, I did that uh, like the first couple of reps or first couple of repeats. I would find myself a little too fast. Yeah, and then for the long runs, how long did you go? I followed it exactly like you had it. So uh, you did all the way up. 224? Right. I think it's just one. 124? 24. Yeah, yeah. I think there was a couple of 20s, maybe three of them. Yeah. A 22 and a 24. Yeah. And uh, so what I would do on those, usually I would just start out at like an 815 pace. Yeah. And I would just hold that for like six miles or so, and then I'd try to increase it as I went along, and then... Toward the end, I was trying to get at my marathon goal pace or maybe a little bit faster. Right. So you want to close hard. You want to do uh, an inverse, a negative split on the training runs. It conditions your body to that race-specific uh, negative split, right? Yep. Cool. I guess you knew about the race got canceled. You knew right. about that, yeah, right? Yeah, so I remember, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, your target race, your A race, you're all ready to go. You're all trained yep. up, and they canceled the race on you. Right, and uh, so, thunderstorms, lightning. 
Yeah, that's in the book when I'm writing about that. I go, what I used to do is schedule like two or three marathons, two or three weeks apart, so that if the first one went bad or you got bad weather, you just roll over to the next one because you still have fitness. So that's classic example of that. So they canceled the race. Right. That morning I'm sitting there. I'm all ready to go and I'm all lubed up and everything. I got everything I need ready to go. And then I look at my email, it says the race is canceled. And I immediately thought, Chris said in his book, have a backup race ready. And here I am sitting here. What am I going to do now? Yeah. But uh, I was able to uh, scramble and find one that was uh, another four weeks out. So that first race, though, was probably a nice local race, a nice flatter race, kind of your A race, right? Right. I did have to travel and spend the night, but the course was uh, nice and flat, uh, tree-covered. It was like a, a rail trail Oh yeah. type course out and yeah. back. Yep. And that one got canceled, so you rolled over to one four weeks later. Right. And, and then and what did you do in the in-between to uh, sort of stay in shape? Well, that Saturday that I was supposed to have the race, uh, drove home. I'm all mad. So I put my shoes on. I'm going running anyways. I'm just going to do this. So I get out there and I, I'm thinking, I'm going to run this 26 miles anyway. So I start out the pace that I think I should be doing. And at about mile 18, I started to feel like crap. So I said, all right, I'm not going to do anything stupid here. I, I just went on home and, uh, just kind of picked up the plan. Basically, I did the last month of the plan all over again from there yeah. yeah how much taper did you give yourself give yourself a couple weeks right i kind of felt like i peaked a little early the yeah. first time so the next time through where the schedule said uh, to do 13 miles for the long run i went ahead and just did 20 <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then the next week i think it said to do 10 and i did 13 yeah and yeah, um so so you gave yourself like a two-week taper. That's fine. So uh, I felt like that was pretty good. And then you hit this next race, which was more difficult. More difficult. I was uh, looking at the course profile. It was very nice of them to backload all the hills. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of hills on the second half. And then uh, we had the wind in our face, so that didn't help too much. And then the very first turn of the race, the flagger was missing. No one there to tell us where to turn, and we ended up running an extra, probably a third of a mile, maybe a half a mile. I'm still not even sure, but I still made it. So, <laughs> so you ended up um, so, running. So I ended up uh, with a three twenty forty seven. Yeah. So that's like four minutes and thirteen seconds of. So, like I said, you should talk to the race director because sometimes they'll give you your estimated time back when they screw up the course like that. Yeah, he said he's going to work on that for us. Yeah, because it's a third of a mile. That could be three minutes for you, right? Or two minutes for you. Yeah, I'm thinking at least two, two and a half minutes. Yeah, because that same exact thing happened to me in Portland last fall, and they gave me four minutes back. Official. So. That's great. Yeah, official. But it screws you up because you're looking at all the mile markers and you're like, something's wrong, right? You're like, oh, yeah. none of the mile markers work. And you're thinking, am I wrong? <laughs> Is the course wrong? You know, oh, yeah. Am I really that slow? Am I really? It's crazy. So it kind of screws up your head. Oh, yeah. All the aid stations were uh, every other mile on the even miles. So every time I'd get to an aid station, it was like 2.4, 4.4. We knew what happened. So yeah. it's yeah. just one of those crazy things. I remember talking to people, and everybody's like shaking their heads going, the, the mile marks are all wrong. And I'm like, yep, they're all off by a half a mile. So uh, the only one that matters is the one at the end. So that's right. focus on that one. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I tried to do. And it looked like you paced really well in terms of your splits. It looks like you were dead nuts on your splits, like three or four seconds per mile. If you throw away the first couple and then yeah, you that- factor in the hills, you were right on your splits. Yeah, that first mile was all downhill. I think it was like 100 feet of drop, and that was probably my fastest mile, but just worked out that way. Did you feel like you were working hard? I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, what did it feel like effort-wise? I felt like I paced myself very, very well. And um, up until probably about mile 16, 17, I really felt like I was working pretty hard. The hills, they just kept coming, and there was this... uh, woman that was in front of me that man she was solid and 
I kind of used her there for a while as a windbreaker. And then I started to pass her, and I thought, well, I'll let, give her a chance to let me break the wind for her. But she wasn't going to have any of it. She kind of stepped it up a notch. I said, all right, I'll just tuck in behind you for a little, yep. little, little while further then. And uh, it's a long race, right? So you get a five, ten mile an hour headwind. If you can tuck in behind somebody, that's going to save you like five percent of your effort. It's a lot over twenty six miles, right? It's five, ten minutes. So right. It's a good strategy either way. And how many people were in this race? Pretty small, right? Yeah, it was a pretty small race. There were only, I think, 56 finished. Wow. And Yeah, they had uh, some pretty big plans. When I signed up for the race, the website said they were going to limit it to 1,500 people. But um, this is the first time they had this one, and it just didn't work out the way they planned. But yeah, maybe the last time, too. <laughs> you were lucky to have somebody to actually see or run with it, with 50 people in the race. There was quite a few lonely miles out there. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really, one of the things of going through a training plan this strenuous, it actually makes it easy for those kind of races, right, those lonely races, because that's yeah. essentially all your training. You just lock in, right? Having yep. a million people around you is actually a distraction. Yeah, like I said, it's my second race, so I haven't had the chance to experience that yet, but I guess I will next April. So you're in for 2018. Right. All right, so let me ask you this. If you had to say, what did you learn from this by going through a structured plan and working this hard? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn that surprised you? Boy, I guess I'd have to say just, I guess I'm capable of doing more than I thought I could. I guess the human body is capable, I guess I should, the way I should put it. If you, you just take care of yourself and do a lot of stretching, and I was afraid that I'd be injured at some point, but it just... It worked out, and really surprised myself there. Yeah, it is. It makes you kind of think that if I can do this, what else can I do, right? Yeah, that it does. I, that I think I can't do. It does. Yeah, and that's what I love about running in the marathon in general is that ability to sort of shine a light on you and say, you know what, your assumptions were wrong. Anybody can do it. You just got to work for it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm no special athlete at all. You know, I'm just an average guy. So a little hard work goes a long way. So have you uh, taken some time off now? This is like, what, two weeks ago, right? Yeah, it was two weeks ago. Well, about 11 days ago. But no, I'm still at it. Uh, I probably should have uh, rested more than I did. But Yeah, I'll um, tell you what. Now that you're in shape, what you got to do is go find a local 10K. You know what? I've uh, the, the same 10K that I raced two years ago is uh, coming up here on July 4th. Yeah, exactly, because you got all this fitness, and so, you should be able to maintain pretty close to your tempo pace. And I don't know what that does to your PR, but I'm guessing it takes a few minutes off it. Yeah, it'll take at least probably two, two and a half minutes if I can do that. Yeah. I'd, love, I'd love to do that. Yeah, because when I was coming out of this, this plan, I would hit my 10K times at tempo plus like five or six seconds. That's pretty fast, so I, right. I hope I can do it. Yeah, so my tempo was like a 6.30, and my 10K PR two weeks after that goal race was a 6.36 pace. Wow, that's incredible. And then the year before I did the same thing, I hit, um, in a five-mile race, I hit 6.30s dead nuts on in a five-mile race with that same sort of fitness coming up right before the marathon. So that's well, fun, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Might win something. Yeah, hopefully I'll get an age group award or something. I'd love that. This will be the third year I've done it. Uh, the first year, my average pace was uh, 7.37. So I ended up running this marathon at a faster pace than my, <laughs> than my first 10K. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how that works, right? I did the same thing. My first 10K, I was trying to break eight-minute miles. <laughs> that was my goal. I trained for like a month to break eight-minute miles. So, But I had no idea what I was doing. So that's great. I'm super proud of you. I'm, it makes me so happy when I get these emails and I see these uh, Facebook posts where people have, have gone out and been successful. And you should be uh, proud of yourself because you did the work. Well, thanks, man. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Put yourself in a position to compete. That's all you can ask for. But now I need you to write another book for me. <laughs> what do you want? I need you to tell me how in the world to, where to go and how to handle this trip to Boston. A trip to Boston? I don't know. <laughs> See, for me, people always ask me that. It's like, I don't know. I never go into Boston. I don't live in Boston. 
I don't stay there. I don't rent a car there. Well, um, um, for me, the you... Boston Marathon is getting in the car on Patriots Day morning with yeah. some of my running buddies, and we drive down the exit like 20, 30 minutes and get dropped off. That's it. That's great. That's my whole trip to Boston. And this year, I was if you listen to my race report, it was funny because it was me and a car full of uh, ladies from my running club. So yeah, that's how times have changed, right? I'm the old guy. <laughs> it's good. All right, man, I'll let you go. Thanks for the chat. We'll see if we can edit this up and uh, make some sense out of it, maybe inspire somebody to go and do something more than they think they can. Absolutely, man. Well, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. All right, buddy. Talk to you later. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. We were off. Now, the course rises sharply out of the start. So my heart rate was screaming as I tried to keep up with the pack. I found some guys who were doing a reasonable speed and hung with them as best I could. Of course, none of them were going 50K. And I knew I couldn't hold that effort level. So I did that thing that I do where I keep saying I'm going to slow down, but don't. And I hooked up with a marathoner from Minnesota who was also hanging off the back of the pack. And we talked about grandmas. We got passed by the shorter race leaders about eh, 2 3k into the first loop, and I was having fun talking to folks and yelling all day when people passed me. The trails were a mixture of single path and double path, lots of rock gardens and a couple streams to hop over. The first 4k loop climbed a couple hundred feet as it circled around and over a ridge and then dropped back down into the start area, and we blasted through that first loop with no problems but I was working way too hard. The second loop followed a sort of fisherman's walk. It was a path along the brook, very rough and eroded and full of roots and trees and rocks. Then the trail left the brook and circled up and around another ridge. And on the backside, it slowly climbed for a bit and then went insane vertical with rocky switchbacks and rock piles. And this topography was kicking my ass. That slow ramp up to the vertical bits wasn't steep enough for me to stop running. When I hit the switchbacks and the hard stuff, I was already in debt and suffered badly on those first two loops until I figured it out. At the 10K transition, I swapped out my hat for a dry one. It wasn't hot, but it was oddly humid in places, and I was working way too hard. I told the guy from Minnesota to go ahead because I was going to try to slow down. And I drank my first half bottle of smoothie. Yum. And then I looked around for the Enduralites. They didn't have the capsules that I'm used to. They had the fizzy tablets that you throw in your bottle. I was game. And plop, plop, fizz, fizzed a couple into my filled up water bottle. This was a bit strange, but not debilitating. The one thing was that as the tablets fizzed, it built up pressure in my water bottle and it would leak until I either vented it or they stopped fizzing, which took like 10 minutes or so for them to peter out. And this mixture was a bit strong for me, but I was able to refill it and dilute it when I crossed the transition area again in the middle of the figure eight. And for those first 10 minutes, every time I'd go to take a drink from my bottle, my bottle would open like a whale breaching. But they seemed to have worked, or maybe it was the smoothies. I never cramped. I was waiting for the other shoe to drop, and it never did. Then in that second loop was where I made a deal with myself to call it at 30K. I was also starting to feel some foot issues. I had committed a distance mistake, a rookie mistake in the first couple K. I went to jump one of the streams and my foot slipped off a wet rock and I ended up dunking my right foot. And the road hokas don't drain very well. And I ended up running those verticals with the wet shoe and the wet sock and was starting to feel my right toenail catching. Classic black toenail mistake. Coming down those steep verticals at the end of 20K, I could feel that toe slipping and sliding and slamming into the front of the toe box. And I know how this would end if it wasn't attended to, but fortunately, I was when I got to the 20K transition. I was ready for this. I took some time taped the toenail down, got a pair of dry socks, another dry hat for good measure, and I reapplied some lube and some chafing places on the undercarriage, 
and I headed out into that third and maybe final loop. But then things changed. Going into that third loop, I was now all alone in the woods. Without people around me, I could slow down and do more structured hiking. After two loops, I had also learned my lesson on the hard side of the course. Instead of running that shallow approach, I switched to a run-hike cadence to keep from going into debt early. And then when I hit the vertical, I wasn't wasted and could manage it. Bottom line, I trotted into the third transition feeling great. I had been out for three and a half hours plus, but I felt great. I was 18 rocky miles and 3,000 feet of elevation in and felt great. And plus, Teresa was there and she had run well and was in a good mood. Damn it. Now I had to honor the deal. I was actually a bit disappointed that I felt so good. Now I had to go the distance. I mean, I wasn't going to stop at 40K. What sense would that make? What do I mean by I felt great? Well, my head was clear. My energy was level. My legs were fine. Like a Sunday jog kind of fine. I found my rhythm, and now it was just a day in the park. My foot care was excellent and timely. The dry socks and the tape had done the trick. This vertical bit on the back side was probably 700 feet of elevation gain in, you know, 1 or 2K, and the trail was single path and technical. In places, it ran right through giant piles of granite chunks. Someone asked me to describe it later, and I said it was like some rock giant took a big rock crap on top of a mountain. There is something strange when you look at your watch, and it says something surreal like five hours. And you think, huh, five hours. And there I was, alone in the woods. It was a beautiful day. Every once in a while, the sun would poke through the tree cover and light up a patch here and there. I was all alone. I began to sing out loud to myself, mostly Grateful Dead songs, but I also ironically sang Going the Distance by Cake. Every once in a while, I'd pass someone hiking or walking their dogs. I'd say hi to the dogs. I like dogs. In the last loop, I passed an older couple hiking, and they said, I thought the race was over, and I couldn't argue with them. I'd developed some edema in my right hand. My fingers were swelling up, and I thought it might be my Garmin being on too tight, so I loosened it, and that seemed to help. Edema is a tricky thing because it's a symptom of both not enough salt and too much salt. When you're on these technical trails, you have to keep your head down, your eyes on the trail. In a loop course like this one, you start to see the same things each time around. And there was a dead mouse in the trail on the switchbacks, probably coughed up by some owl, and it became one of my landmarks. There were these giant centipedes, more than two inches long, like something out of Jurassic Park that were trucking across the trail as the day warmed. There was a historic marker, which I indulged myself to stop and read on the fourth loop. Apparently, the early settlers had established a charcoal production site here a couple hundred years ago. Slash and burn. I got lapped by the 50k leaders coming into the figure eight transition, probably around 42k into the race. Two guys flying past me and back out for their last lap, and I still had another loop. When I came through the 40K transition, Teresa was there chatting with the course directors, and someone asked me incredulously, are you going out again? And I was confused. Didn't I make the cutoff? Yes, yes, I've got one more lap. And Teresa asked me, how are you feeling? And I say, legs are good. Then she asks, how's your GI? And I say, GI is fine, a little rumly in the tumbly, but nothing serious. And I shouldn't have tempted the gods. As soon as I'm out of the transition, my oatmeal breakfast hits me like that scene from Alien, and I have to scamper off trail to find a tree or a hole or a rock. I consider going back to the transition, but hell no, I'm not retracing my steps at this point. And I'm a bit sweaty, having been on the trail for, eh, you know, six hours or so. And there isn't a good leaf selection, but I'm pretty far into the race to care too much about that. And there's something very ultra about trying to run while picking leaf litter out of your butt crack. I did fall down five times, once quite badly. There was this woman running close to me and the end of the 30K loop. And I had passed her before, 
but I think she repassed me in my long transition at the 20K. I was faster at going up the hills than she was, but she was a great downhill technical runner and outdistanced me dancing down through the rock gardens. Twice when I pulled up to within sight of her, I caught a toe and went down, and it was because I had my head up and I was watching her instead of watching where I was supposed to be stepping. And the second time I planted sideways on a big rock right into my right side, and I think I bruised or broke a rib. <laughs> it still hurt a couple of weeks after. When I passed her the first time, she told me she was going the 50K, but then she bailed at 30K. Everybody bailed at 30K. The guy from Minnesota DNF'd. I ended up coming in sixth out of seven finishers. Of course, I was second in my age group out of two. <laughs> the two front runners came in around five and a half hours, and I trotted across the finish line an hour and a half later at seven hours and 41 seconds. There was one guy behind me about a half an hour who made the cutoff and another that did not. It was a long day, but I felt fine right through the end. I even gave it a bit of a kick in through the finish. Uh, I waded into the pond to see if I could wash some of the sweat and muck off my body, and they warned me that the bacteria count was high. I did have some raw spots and didn't want to come down with that flesh-eating crud. So Teresa and I toweled off and changed to get as comfortable as possible for the drive home. My undercarriage was a bit tender from all the chafing, but other than that, I was no worse for wear. Uh, the next day, Sunday, I was out doing yard work and moving around nicely, no leg soreness at all. My biceps were a bit sore from carrying the bottles and swinging my arms for seven hours, and my back and my chest was sore from whatever I did to my ribs. I was still sore Monday and Tuesday and then ran again on Wednesday. I quite enjoyed my peaceful seven-hour hike in the woods in Connecticut. I set a 50K PR, and I guess a PW at the same time. I did not find the distance that difficult coming off a hard road marathon cycle. I think the green smoothie idea was a winner. I didn't die. I got to make some memories with Teresa, and I didn't have to get on a plane. I didn't have to stay in a hotel. My kind of low overhead adventure. Now let's see how that snow is coming along in Tuckerman's Ravine. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my beautiful fit and fast friends. Do you have the grit to get through a training plan? Stay healthy and hit that starting line with gusto? Maybe. Maybe not. But you have hung in there through the end of episode 4-367 of the Run Run Live podcast. Congratulations. Did you see that lady from Oklahoma who won Comrades Marathon? Great article in, I think it was Trail Runner or Competitor. She says she has two craft beers during every race. Not three, not one, two. So that's enough to get her head and body in the zone. So I kind of wonder why that's not considered doping. I tagged a brief audio at the end of this show from Dwayne, who is looking for people to go run an eclipse run with him, a once-in-a-lifetime event. So listen to that. Next week, I'm going to have a chat with Julia, who has a very interesting story of how life changed for her. She ended up finding herself with endurance running, that story that we hear so much. Also, I am in conversations with the anxiety guy, Tim, to do an interview about the interconnection between exercise and anxiety. So I'm going to keep curating older episodes onto the members feed as well. Let's talk about avocados. Avocados. Yeah. Do you like avocados? Avocados are actually quite interesting. They are native to the Americas. Yes, a flowering tree native to the Americas. They are actually considered a berry, the avocado fruit there. That's a berry with a single seed. I like avocados. I have one in my salad most days. Good, healthy fat. A couple of interesting things. First, avocados should not exist. They evolved the way they are to be eaten whole by megafauna, woolly mammoths. Giant sloths, woolly rhinos, that sort of thing. The megafauna would eat the avocado in one big gulp, swallow them, 
and dropped them with a bit of fertilizer some distance off. That was the avocado survival strategy. Doesn't work well when all the megafauna are gone. But along came humans and took a fancy to the poor avocado, and we cultivated them and developed them into the current smaller seed, lots of meat form that they have. Did you know there's now an injury called avocado hand that is so common among millennials that it is an official medical term? Avocado hand. It's when you cut your hand trying to open an avocado with a knife. You can see how to open an avocado with a knife on YouTube. I use a modified approach where I cut it into four sections. So I uh, bifurcate it twice. And then I separate it. And then the skin just peels off the quarters like a ripe banana. Avocados have a perfect ripeness state that you have to catch them at. You want them to be ripe, but not mushy. And when you buy them, what you want to do is you want to leave one or two out on the counter to ripen and leave the rest in the fridge, and then sort of rotate them every couple of days, right? As you eat one, you move one out. And they ripen fast. And if it gets ripe and you're not ready to use it, just stick it back in the fridge and it will stay at that ripeness forever. Also, if you don't want to eat the whole thing, you know, they turn brown once you open them up, you can put lemon juice on the exposed flesh of the leftovers to keep them from going brown in the fridge. A little Martha Stewart tip there. And that's it. That's all I got to say about that. From mammoths to you, everything is connected. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him Right. That sounds great. All right, so why don't I start, Matt? Why don't I start by? Um, I'll just uh, I'll just start. How about that? <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> oh, it's been a long day. Hey there, Chris, and all you run run livers. My name is Dwayne. I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm an avid listener of the show. Here's my adventure for the summer that I'm looking forward to. I'm a big space guy. And so for the past 35 years or so, I've been looking forward to the only total solar eclipse that I'm ever going to experience in my life. And I promised myself I would get into the path of totality somehow on August 21st, 2017. And here it comes. So I booked a flight to Portland, Oregon, where... Um, X-Dog Events is hosting a 15-mile run up into the high deserts of Oregon where I cross a finish line and I'm greeted with a barbecue lunch and some beer and some viewing glasses to uh, to catch this incredible event. So that's a pretty good adventure. Oh, and I'm staying to do a lot of road cycling, trail running, mountain climbing, waterfall exploring um, in the area. And, and, of course, the nightlife that Chris has told us is so exciting in Portland. So how's that for an adventure?